people who truly understand the culture of a certain area are easily able to influence those people. It's very dangerous because in the hands of the wrong people, it could lead to a lot of catastrophes. But once we are aware of the power of culture, then we also utilize that to our own benefit. Greetings, good people. I'm Kumi Naidu, and you're listening to Power, People and Planet, a series of candid conversations with activists and community leaders from around the world, aiming to tackle the biggest questions of our time. What's race and inequality got to do with climate change? Is our current economic and political system even capable of restoring nature or tackling inequality? And how do we start to rebuild trust, even a new social contract between citizens and people in power? Today, I'm really pleased that we are speaking with Islam Elbiti, a young Sudanese musician, activist, community engagement lead at the Innovation for Policy Foundation, cultural wave support lead at the Global Assembly, and the co-founder of the Sudanese Innovation and Entrepreneurship Network. Islam was born in Khartoum and grew up in Ethiopia, China, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Since returning to Sudan, she's forged a groundbreaking career as a bass player and a radio presenter all in a country where music is viewed with some suspicion and female musicians seen as a threat to public decency. Islam hopes we amongst the many to change that. Islam, thanks so much for speaking to us today. So we all know that music has intense emotional power. Yeah, in South Africa, where I'm speaking to you from today, uh, during the liberation struggle, if we didn't have music, we would not have been able to communicate the messages of the resistance to the apartheid system. So I know how music can make us dance, cry, remember, or celebrate. But you believe passionately that music can be a powerful force for social change. Could you share a bit more about that and why you believe so? Hi, Kumi. Thank you so much for having me. It is really, truly such an honor. I didn't imagine that we would be here like a month ago. So it's always yeah. great. Well, well um, maybe you should tell people that, that we found ourselves uh, just <laughs> over six weeks ago when yeah. Islam reached out to me to help with the Global Assembly idea, which she'll talk about in a short while. And I was so inspired by his story and the work she was doing. I said she had to be on the podcast. So <laughs> my you. honor to have you. It is truly an honor. Um, I mean, you know, music truly is um, a force of change. And I think growing up, like we've always had music around the house. My mom is in love with Congolese rumba and supus. So we always had like Congolese music playing. And I think that's where I got my dancing chops from. But <laughs> generally, um, I think one of the reasons I, you know, deviated a lot towards jazz is particularly in the concept of what jazz represents, which is um, freedom of expression, it's democracy, it's um, all these underlying things that we, you know, always experience in our daily lives. But, you know, if, you, if you're lucky enough, you get to experience jazz and you like, you know, your, your entire eyes open to this genre that for a lot of people just sounds like music, but for people who truly understand what jazz is, jazz is truly about democracy. It is truly about participation. It is truly about listening 
Um, and and I think for me through jazz, I was able to experience that, like meeting the most random people in the most random countries where I don't even speak the language, but we play this song that we all know because it's a jazz standard and we, we give each other a lot of space to, to voice what we want. And and I think that's one of the most powerful things about music is that it allows you to truly um, participate with other people and to voice your opinion and to voice your feelings and, and your concerns. Um, and, you know, it might sound all too theoretical, but it's really true. Um, and I think for, for me at a personal level, especially with Sudan, like having gone through the revolution and having experienced um, the sit-in for three months, you know, um, the thing that kept people there was music, right? Music was playing until 4 a.m. People stayed there because they were so deprived of live music that always ended at 11. But now we can play live music until 4. Who is going to go home? No one, right? Yeah. And so people, musicians were just volunteering and pitching up and, and totally. playing for long hours. There was like four or five stages at the sit-in. And the sit-in was wide. It was like around eight kilometers and there was that sit-in for the reggae music. There was uh, like a you know stage for for uh, more Sudanese contemporary music. And you go wherever your ears wanted to go, right? And wow. and I remember we always every single night we'd come in the sit-in or we'd spend the night. I just cannot wait until we start jamming. And then I met all these incredible musicians that otherwise I would never meet in a regular day in Sudan because either they live in a different state or. They just, we don't have the same circle. And for me, that was an incredible experience of what, of how music can, can truly bring people together, right? Wow, that's an amazing story. And, and can I ask you, if you were to quantify the lyrics, right? What percentage of it would you say was like hardcore political messaging? And what percentage of it was just life, love, you know, sex? Uh, yeah. tragedy, you know, just normal things, non-political stuff. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's, 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 I think before the revolution, we weren't exposed to a lot of political music coming out of Sudan by Sudan people in Sudan because you go to jail right away. You know, they take you, you're gone. Um, but you did see a lot of it stemming from artists that um, left Sudan and were, you know, making artists, but making music. But I think majority was always about love especially like Sudanese music, we have this very big tendency to love and to express love, especially in Arabic, like the language is so beautiful and in the way it expresses love. So I think no, nothing about sex, that's for sure, because also it's a major taboo and you yeah. get in a lot of trouble for singing about it. But artists, Sudanese artists back in the day always used to sing about it. Um, but I think during the revolution, there was a big chunk, like maybe... 40% of the music was about power to the people, you know, down with the government, um, power to Sudan and all, all the, you know, what it can be. So, yeah, I would say it's a, I personally always like to play music that had no lyrics because I was like, oh, I don't, maybe I don't want to be associated with that. That's why I like jazz. Right? We just play, you know? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, that, I'm, I'm, I'm smiling so much because, your story is resonating so much with my experience as a young activist. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. I could not sing like uh, or play a music, musical instrument like you could. But uh, for example, I grew up, grew up in a context where the main language uh, of the resistance was Zulu, but I did not have any Zulu skills growing up in a township that was, there was no Zulu. And uh, given the way apartheid divided us, but when we went to the rallies, 
we learned the songs very quickly, right? But 50% of the time, I did not know exactly what the exact lyrics were saying for each of the words that we're singing in Zulu, but it yeah. didn't really matter. It didn't really matter because it gave you energy, strength, uh, and most importantly, a sense of community. You didn't feel Absolutely. alone. You, you know, you felt that you were there with everybody else. And, and the thing about what I feel very strongly when I speak to young people today is to say to them, you know, especially when I look at how young the climate student movement is, Fridays for the Future, for example, I, I say to them, make sure you don't allow the Trumps of the world, the Bolsonaros of the world, the Modis of the world to deprive you of your youth, right? And in the course of struggle, make sure you're having fun while you are in the struggle. Sing, dance, you know, celebrate each other's community and so on. And that's why I, I agree so much that, um, you know, Music is such a critically important thing. Can I ask you, how do you relate to other musicians who sought social change through music? Like, I mean, even if you haven't met them, but like if I think of, uh, in you know, people like Fela Kuti, Nina Simone, Yuma Sakela, um, um, yeah, in South Africa, for example. Um, and then who inspires you? Who inspires you? Who has inspired you to make this connection between social justice and music? I mean, this is a really uh, interesting question because I think Kuma Sekela, Nina Simone, um, Fela Kuti, I only, like, I was introduced to them at a very different level of my life where I was listening to Nina Simone from the time where I was like 16 or 17 years old, where I was just, you know, starting to listen to more conscious music. And I always felt like all these three artists were fighting for the same thing, social justice, democracy, inclusion, um, you know, Black lives really do matter. And I think they have laid it out in their lives and the way that they lived their lives over all over these years. When I started listening to Nina Simone, I was like, my God, how could someone be so powerful and such an incredible vocalist and also so resilient um, and, and is constantly resisting uh, oppression? And then I went into the phase when I started listening to Bella Kuti and I was damn, man, this is, this is really, really groovy. And the songs would go on for 15, 16 minutes, nonstop. And I think my music ideas have definitely started to changing when I, when I started listening to Fela Kuti um, and, you know, previously, like, you know, introduced to his, his sons and, and, and the entire family. And I think for me, Huma Sekela particularly was this, like, obviously, you know, I have to state that he was one of the most incredible trumpeteers this continent has ever seen, probably the entire yeah. world. Um, and and his tone, it was one of my style. greatest pleasures and honors to have met him and have been able to spend time with him. And 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 you know, just before he left us, you, you know, he performed in uh, Morocco at the Moi Brahim Foundation uh, conference. Uh, sorry. Uh, yeah, annual conference, yeah, conference and I, I was yeah. there and, and you know, he was just so powerful and uh, and he had the energy, you know, you would, I, I told him, one of the things I told him was, I wish I have half the energy when I hit the number of years you've hit, you know, because yeah. he just inspired energy. Jazz keeps you young, I'm telling you, jazz keeps you young. <laughs> Were you that's why all these jazz artists, they, they stay around for a long time because it keeps you young, it keeps you always um, feeling so good and always wanting more and, and so nothing comes in your way, right? I wish somebody told me that 
fuck years ago. <laughs> it's not too late for me. <laughs> so, so let me let me share a reflection with you and see how you feel about it, right? When we look at uh, one of the reasons why activism is failing uh, and not winning big enough and fast enough, I think uh, one of the mistakes we make is that we often think that politics drives culture, when in fact, always, I believe now, culture drives politics, right? And uh, I certainly have made this mistake, and I must credit the uh, Steve Bannon, for example, uh, Trump's uh, chief ideologue and strategist. Uh, and, and even before that, Karl Rove, which was George Bush's chief uh, strategist, they understood that culture drives politics and they have maximized it. And I think progressive thinkers, progressive actors and activists and so on must now humble ourselves, understand where the cultural vibe is in a particular society and connect with that vibe and not believe that we are always the olders of absolute truth and we just go there and preach to people and people will just follow. Uh, does that resonate with you as a perspective? I mean, absolutely. I, I mean, uh, I personally see it in every single aspect of my work, of my daily life. Um, you know, it's that people who truly understand the culture of, of a certain area are easily able to influence those people. And I think like right-wingers, Trumps, all of these people, they understood that and they, they put that, um, you know, to their advantage. And you see it also, um, like, for example, you know, donors coming in, hey, we want to support your industry. We want to do this. And this is how I, this is how we think you should be supported, which is always like a big question mark. Like, how did you know that this is what we need? You don't understand us. You don't know us, you know, and, and, and you see this a lot, but it's different than when you sit and analyze and understand and dive into the culture of, of people, of communities. And then it's, it's, it's you know, there's, it's, it's very dangerous because it, in the hands of the wrong people, it can lead to like really a lot of catastrophes. But in the hands of, Absolutely. You know, yeah, once we're aware of it as, as individuals, as communities, as, you know, we are aware of the power of culture, then we also utilize that to our own uh, benefit, right? Absolutely. Uh, there's one thing I just want to clarify, right? Because this is something that I've been advocating for for a couple of years now, that we need to bring the worlds of arts and culture closer to the world of activism, which now in the jargon is called artivism, right? As you know. And, and I just want to be clear, we're not saying, as some people said during the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa, that arts and culture must be a tool of the resistance, right? I'm not talking about that kind of... In fact, what we need is arts and culture to also hold up a mirror to activism when activism is not reaching its eyes, ethical sort of performance and so on. So just to be clear, and, and I think you would agree with me, we're not talking about functionalizing arts and culture. We're talking about what can be the most creative, mutually beneficial sort of relationship. But I want to take you back a little bit about being a young woman musician in Sudan today. How do you combat the strong prejudices against female musicians and restrictive social rules for women in general? Ah, this is one of the most like difficult um, questions because I, I don't like to talk negatively about my own people, but in this case, I'm always forced to because this is the reality in which we live. Um, I think Sudan is a very tough place for women uh, in general. 
And then when you're a woman who is doing something that is absolutely unacceptable in society, but, you know, alhamdulillah, now things are changing a little bit. There's a lot more acceptance. Um, but I think when I when I lived in Sudan, like I stayed there for three years, I were constantly playing concerts. It was really difficult because, um, first of all, I had to prove myself as a musician amongst all the men, um, which eventually they realized that I realized that I don't need to prove myself to anyone because I was pretty much as good as all of them. Um, when the when the right time has come, you know, and then I had to battle with my own family, um, you know, for allowing me to do this because my parents at the core didn't have an issue, but their issue was what our direct community would say. Would say, yeah, you know? exactly, and and that's like I'm like I don't care what they say. They're like, no, you have to care what they say. You know, <laughs> we're a community. I'm like, no, I want to play music, and that's it. And 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 then eventually I'm I'm like naturally a massive rebel. So I just I'm like, I'm gonna do what I want, I'm gonna play whatever backlash I face, I'm gonna deal with it, and you guys are gonna support me. And they were like, Okay, cool. So um huge shout out to my parents. Sounds great. So cool. Yeah, they're really great. Um, but I think what they were trying to protect me from was the society where if I'm seen walking, holding a guitar, it's, I get, I hear really bad things. I get catcalled. I get, um, you know, like I remember this is one of the worst experiences. I was playing a concert and this older man comes up to me and says, why are you playing? You should be singing. Playing is a job of men. Go off and play, go off and sing. I just look at him and I, I beg you, I don't really care how old you are. I'm like, get out of my face. I'm playing right now. He's like, oh, you're so disrespectful. How could you say this to me? How could you? I'm like, I'm working. I'm playing. If you don't like what you're listening to, leave. He's like, this is my party. I'm staying. And and for me, I was so upset because I told him, I told him off. And he came back. And eventually, I just put my bass down. And then the entire band stopped playing. And they were like, what's wrong? I'm like, I'm not playing if this guy doesn't leave me and stop telling me what to do. And I think that was just a perfect example of you know, as, as, as people who are just supposed to bow down to, 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 to the man, we're just supposed to be amongst the lines of, of, of you know, uh, society. And, and I think I've constantly and throughout my whole life tried to, to break that. Unfortunately, it's had major implications on my mental health, but I definitely think, definitely think that it is a fight worth fighting, not just for me, but for all the other women who want to continue to do um, or to play music. Do you see signs of change, though, following the Sudanese revolution as well as elsewhere in, in, in Africa? Do you see that more space is opening up for young women musicians and especially those that are also taking on social issues? Totally, absolutely, especially in Sudan. Like, I think women now are, are, are more um, free uh, in some sense. Of course, there's always the anti-revolution side that's always trying to make things really difficult but I see that women are, are becoming more vocal they're just more out there really it's 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 not anymore like we're hiding because we're also now aware of of what the previous regime was doing this entire time to our minds to our you know um, level of community make sure that they place us as women in certain places um, and we don't dare and think to go outside of these lines but I see that a lot now in, in Sudan, but even in the continent, I think a lot more women are, are taking up space. Um, they're demanding to be where they're supposed to be. And um, I, I love it. I love it. I love seeing it. And I love seeing that also a lot of parents are now becoming more 
easygoing with their daughters, especially in Sudan. You know, I think in a lot of parts of the world, people don't really care too much about what parents say. They do whatever they want. They're old enough. But I think in my community in Sudan, it is um, absolutely vital to to make sure you have a good relationship with your parents. Um, and I see a lot more women standing up for what they want and more parents becoming more um, understanding. And definitely, uh, it's really beautiful. That's great to hear. Um, but it sounds like it's also been quite a challenge for you personally, uh, you know, to deal with these strict traditions and, 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 and widespread negativity when one tries to break boundaries. Uh, what now gives you hope that this can be easier for the next Islam in Sudan that emerges? You know, uh, what gives you hope at this, when you think about where things are? Um, I think the fact that women are now standing beside each other um, and it was always the case where in Sudan you see a lot of um, us as women, we, we, we don't support each other in the sense because we disagree with certain things. But now just for the fundamental basis that you're a woman, I'm a woman, we share the same struggle. We have the same issues. Let's just stand together and, and, and make things better. So I see a lot of that happening now. Um, I see a lot of like support groups for, for creatives, for women, more spaces opening up. Um, and I would love to see more um, Isra's and more um, Sarah's and more, you know, all of these beautiful women everywhere um, taking up an instrument, making sure that they continue this fight. So eventually when our kids come along, they, they don't have to, you know, fight for anything that is um, naturally supposed to be theirs. So thank you for that. And, and thank you for that reflection, because it sounds like, you know, um, you, like many people on our continent and around the world, sort of have almost like love-aid relationships with our own countries uh, in a way because we love it to the core. And then sometimes our leadership lets us down or the systems that become consolidated are just so against the values that our country is supposed to believe in but doesn't practice, right? So for you, as somebody who's lived in different countries in your time, um, how do you how do you feel about uh, Sudan right now? I, you know, because um, Sudan inspired us. Let's be honest, right? People like myself, when you all waged that revolution, was one of the most inspiring things that we saw because we know what a repressive state. I can tell you, if you take uh, compare what it was like to take on the apartheid system and the levels of repression we dealt with, and what it was to take on the system that you had to take on in Sudan uh, in the revolution, you all were facing significantly more, uh, you know, uh, uh, violence, I mean, dead bodies in the river in significant numbers, all of that stuff, right? Uh, but can you reflect a little bit about this tension that we sometimes feel about, and, and, and particularly, I think, uh, as we're seeing in South Africa right now, where our revolution our struggle for justice has been so badly betrayed by the factionalism within the ruling party and many other reasons like corruption and impunity. But how are you generally feeling about where Sudan is right now? Um, I'm, I'm really sad about where Sudan is right now, but I also understand that this is a natural process towards transition and also dismantling um, a system of plus 30 years of military rule and corruption and um, and all of that. I think 
for for I, I love Sudan from the bottom of my heart. Um, unfortunately, I left because I just didn't feel safe anymore. Um, I didn't see, feel safe walking in the streets. I didn't feel safe practicing music. I didn't feel safe at at any really point, which is something I've never imagined in my life. Because um, every time I'm in Sudan, I feel the safest compared to anywhere else in the world. Um, you know, I feel safe going out at night, uh, coming back home whenever, being in whatever groups. Um, but I think all this um, repression over on in 30 years have just led the country and the society to be in such a horrible place where um, for people like me never felt like we belonged. You know, people who are not within, let's say, the norms of how a Sudanese woman should look like, how she should speak, what she should do, her roles at home and outside. Um, so I, I remember during the revolution, I always felt this one feeling that I've never, ever felt before, which is like, oh, my God, I belong in this place. These are my people. We are one. Um, we are because because we were really united for one for one common goal. And we were all united because we we needed to make sure that this 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 works, that it has to succeed, because if it doesn't, then we're screwed. Um, and and we managed to, you know, take down the, 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 the regime. But we didn't I don't think we really put a lot of thinking on what we're going to do afterwards, because there were people who were thinking and they had their own agendas. Everyone has agenda. Once you have power, it, it's, it's so sexy, apparently that you don't want to leave and you want to stay and you want to do things your way and not be inclusive in your policies or your, um, you know, regulations and anything. So right now I feel pretty sad because um, it's, it's, I always feel like there's such, there's such great opportunity and such great people um, in Sudan that are just unfortunately um, put in a place where they don't really have a choice where things, you know, if, if, I was able to afford life in Sudan before the revolution. I can't anymore. And I think that's the case for, for everyone. And I would say I come from, let's say, a privileged side of society where I find things really expensive right now. So imagine people who don't have, you know, such financial privileges and so on, even the fact to leave. So it's, it's uh, I feel really um, sad, um, disappointed. We lost a lot of really um, important people for us. Um, during the revolution, and it's just sometimes always sad to, to know that they never received justice and nothing had, has been done to make sure that they receive justice because, you know, they pretty much gave up the most important thing, which is their life. Right, yeah. um, so hopefully, and inshallah, that we continue to work together, um, you know, as Sudanese people, as the international community, to make sure that Sudan and the Sudanese agenda always comes first. Well, I wish you all the best in that struggle and that fight. Let's move out uh, beyond Sudan now. And I want to talk about two pieces of your work and then look at how the cultural piece, uh, how it fits into your cultural frame in a way. So tell us about the work that you do with the Innovation Policy Foundation. What exactly it is, what does it do, and what's the vision of its work? So the... I for policy, as we call it, which means I am for policy. And that means everyone can be part of a policy making. Um, I think the vision for I for policy, the future is co-created, which is everything from here on on forward can be done when we're together. And the core values of, of, of I, I mean, I for policy started as a movement of a bunch of people coming together and saying, why aren't entrepreneurs and innovators part of the policy making process? 
It's always about supporting the entrepreneurship, you know, industry and environment, but never talking at a policy level of inclusion and participatory. So it's pretty much about participatory democracy, but in practice through policy um, for entrepreneurship and innovation. Um, you know, we we at the moment we are partners with about 48 community members from around the entire continent. It's a really beautiful, beautiful um, network. Yeah. That's a 48 individuals or 48 groups? So 48 countries. We have like, yeah, community members in 48 countries of the continent. So almost all of it. Um, and these community members are, you know, um, innovation hubs, corporation spaces, um, you know, organizations. And and it's, it's I think, one of the most incredible um, organizations that I've come across because of the, the fact that really everything is about co-creation. Um, when I'm working, I don't feel like I'm working. I feel like I'm just, you know, having fun with some friends, but it's really... That's truly, the best kind of work. <laughs> yeah, it's really great, you know, truly impactful work um, with the Innovation for Policy Foundation. And we're a really small team. Um, so, yeah, so what we do... So is how, how small is your team, by the way? We're like 12 people. Um, yeah. We're 12 people, yeah. So Just, just from my own experience, let me tell you, small mm-hmm. is not necessarily weaker. Uh, because there are very many very big organizations with very big numbers, big budgets, and so on. But I've run out of fresh ideas, uh, you know, making a mistake that Albert Einstein warned us about when he said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting to get different results. So what's lovely about the Innovative and Policy Foundation is is really uh, exploring new ways and 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 this whole notion of co-creation in terms of policy is critically what has worked in, in in many places. I mean, even if you look at a city like Porto Alegre in Brazil, which did participatory budgeting, you know, where every citizen in the city went through a process where they could have a voice about what should be in the budget, right? So. Uh, you know, co-creation at its best, if you want. Uh, yeah. And even though it might take a little longer to get a decision and the processes might be more complicated, in the end, the fact that you included people's wisdoms, exactly. anxieties, fears, and so on, helps you come up, hopefully, with the best outcomes. Yeah, and I think the process is even more important than the outcome. Just, I think, even for us, like, we saw it in Senegal. We saw it like, you know, in Senegal, they have a startup act now in Tunisia, a few upcoming in Burkina Faso. And and I like firsthand saw what it means for like a lot of random people to be in one place to work together on a vision for a better country, for better policies for, for their businesses. And and I think I was like, yeah, but when are we going to get startup acts? And it doesn't matter. What matters is we all came together and we're now aware of the power we have as people, as normal, everyday people, um, and the important role that we play um, in shaping the policies of our, our collective governments and so on. So, yeah, I think the Innovation for Policy Foundation is the coolest place to work. And I'm very, very proud and happy to be working there. Great. And it's yeah. lovely to see. It really is, for me personally, it's so lovely to see every time in the four conversations we've had since we found each other a couple of months ago, it's just been uh, very inspiring to see how inspired you are about yeah. the work that you're doing. And I, and right yeah. now, to be honest, 
I'm talking to lots of people, young people, especially reaching out to me for conversations about their work. And most of the time, people are frustrated right now because they're stuck in old institutions that have not adapted to the context in which we find ourselves in. Can we talk about your global piece, which is how we met, actually? Uh, yes. That is uh, part of the global... Just tell us a story about what is the Global Assembly team and what your role is within that, how it's linked to Extinction Rebellion and so on. Um, so the Global Assembly um, is not linked to Extinction Rebellion. I think it's an entire um, movement on its own. And it was pretty much based on sortition, so random selection of, of, of people around the world to um, have a say with regards to climate change and climate action. And we've picked out like 100 uh, points around the world and we're currently running like deliberative labs to, um, you know, make sure that there's community hosts who can co-create the, the, the assembly with us. And I'm personally responsible together with another colleague um, for the cultural wave, which through that, we um, are going to work with a lot of artists to develop the toolkit and learning materials for the, for the different uh, distributed events so that um, people in the distributed events can go through a learning process to understand climate and to make an informed decision and to, you know, to have an informed say. Um, so we're working with artists to create a really, really cool um, toolkit um, and also to make sure that we support a lot of artists uh, over the entire world to be able to create arts that supports the educational um, side of, of, of climate, um, climate action, to make sure that people are informed, to make sure people know the correct information and that the information is culturally relevant to, to, to all of them. And I think through this project, you realize that one of the most difficult things is, is, is understanding the culture of all, these, of all these countries. And it takes us back to that point about the importance of cultural understanding. So. Um, and, you know, we, we work a lot with people who have been previously involved in like citizens' assemblies. Personally, for me, this was my first time learning about citizens' assemblies. And I was like, how in the world did I not know about this? How do citizens' people not know about citizens' assemblies? Because I think they're really one of the most uh, beautiful um, things if they, if they are done uh, properly. So can, and, you define, uh, can you define, Islam, what is a global assembly done properly? Just, just assume most of the folks listening and viewing uh, don't know, uh, including myself. Just break it down simply for us. For my understanding and from my point of view, it would be that the, the voices of all these people that you never hear before are present in shaping the world that we want. And that there is a global infrastructure where you know the, the practice of citizens' assemblies are encouraged all over the world, the, the practice of participation is encouraged all over the world, especially when it comes to decision-making at a government level. And that's, you know, truly, true democracy is being practiced. I think for me that in my simple understanding, that's what feels like um, a successful uh, assembly where citizens are ruling and they're being ruled over, um, which I think really, um, according to the aristocrat, that, that, that was the, that's the definition of democracy. Um, I'm reading this very nice book called Against Elections. I'm pretty sure you've read it. Uh, it's opened my eyes a lot into um, sortition and citizens' assemblies. Well, I'm not familiar with that. I will look it up. But I, I know that I've been, in, in, in 2000, I uh, co-authored a 
a piece with the, somebody from India uh, when I was at Civicus where there was a line which said, elections run the risk of becoming preordained elite legitimation exercises and will leave the majority of people uh, excluded and we ignore this risk at our own peril. And we are seeing it sadly. I mean, you know, to be honest with you, Islam, most of the time, things that I say are who shabrog because, <laughs> yes. you know, like, like every day I, was, I do an analysis, I think, yeah, I hope I'm wrong. And sadly, that was said in 2000, and I see what's happening in South Africa right now. We have the form of democracy without the substance of democracy. You know, the ordinary will of people is not necessarily, and, and I would say that the same applies to multiple countries around the world, including the United States and elsewhere, because a lot of voices of ordinary people which need to be heard um, are not being heard. Can I just ask you one question of clarification? You say assembly process, you are working on climate change right now. You have a focus on, your focus is the cultural wave. Can you just tell us what the other waves are, if there are other waves? What are the other pieces? Yes, there's the distributed events, um, which are happening in, um, so there's about 500 distributed events happening. Um, it's really complex, so even I'm like really struggling to understand the entire bigger picture. But yeah, there's a distributed events, there's the Knowledge and Wisdom Committee um, that are working on developing the toolkits and the learning materials. There are, you know, the community hosts, which are people that we would work with, you know, in order to make sure that, um, you know, the like for these 100 points that we randomly selected on the map, that, you know, these points are, make sure that they're, they're there, that people are represented, and then they have facilities to have access to internet, to translation, um, and, and so on. And yeah, I'm not sure if, if I'm like the right person to ask about the entire machine of it, because I think we're all still trying to figure it out. But um, that's what I understand from it. And I think um, it's really difficult to do this kind of work, but I but just like small, small wins, like they, they're really, really powerful. No, that's wins. great. I, I just want to make sure people understood the scope of what the Global Assembly is. And, and so can, let me ask you uh, the, some of the devil advocate questions, right? So people mm -hmm. say uh, using a random sample of 100 people uh, in the first use of this methodology is probably too small a sample. How do you respond to that? Me personally, as Islam, I would say we're prototyping this year and 100 people um, randomly selected based on population size, um, gender, age, social status, um, I think is quite fair for a beginning of to, to run the process and to see how the nuts and bolts. And then I would say that next year there would be um, uh, 1,000 people assembly. So there'll be 1,000 points also from the same algorithm of age, gender, um, population size. Like you will see, for example, China has 16 points, India has 18 points um, based on the population side, which we're now realizing is absolutely incredible, like the diversity in just these countries and, and the difficulty to access some of these places as well. Well, and, and, yeah. and you hope, uh, when do you hope that the first iteration, that the first round will be completed? And I'm assuming that um, you hope to have this ready in time for the climate negotiations in Glasgow in November, December. Is that correct? Yes. So the 100 people 
um, that are randomly selected. They would present at COP. And um, I think by February, we will have a report about the assembly and, and, and so on. I think the deliberation has already started, um, like the deliberative labs. And um, so I think August and September are going to be quite hardcore of a lot of uh, community hosting, a lot of events happening on the ground in different locations, um, a lot of mini uh, citizens assemblies. So, yeah. Uh, just say a little bit more about how you see mini citizens assemblies working. Will these be at a national level or always global? I think they're at national level. So what we're always saying is that if we truly want the assembly to be global, it has to be authentically local. So that's why we're working with community hosts all over the world where um, they apply and we support them with rent financing, for example, to have internet, um, to make sure that everything is well facilitated so that they can run um, the assemblies in different in different places. Just, just to say, you know, I, I'm not a specialist on global assemblies, but what I know is that we all have the burden right now and we all need to have the courage right now to say, if what we've done for the last 50, 60, 70 years, struggling for environmental justice, economic justice, and so on, is not delivered results, then let's have the courage to innovate and do things differently from the way we did it. Even if we're not guaranteed success, I think we have an ethical and moral responsibility uh, and, and we need the courage rather than stick with the better the devil you know than the devil you don't know kind of yeah. <laughs> logic even when that devil is letting you down really badly uh so yeah. so, so thank you i want to i want to go back to the music if you if you don't mind that's so, the more fun part yes. <laughs> so your love of music uh you know what i didn't get very clearly where did it stem from what was the the spark from a very young age right my mom. My mom ensured that as kids, we always had access to really good music that we were listening to. Wow. And I always pushed my dad to take us to music classes wherever wow. we went. Um, I think if my mom could go back in time, she would also be a musician. I know that for sure. So that's why I think she's probably my biggest fan right now, because she also sees that this, this could have been her. She could have been playing music. She could have been, yeah. you know. So I think sometimes that she lives her life through me, which can be quite tough sometimes <laughs> when it comes to values and stuff. I'm like, mom, I don't agree with what you say. And that's all right, you know. So I think she, I definitely, um, to her and to also my auntie with my mom's sister, she gave me my first guitar. And I definitely owe a lot of my um, my my work to, to them both for like, I think they were the two people who were constantly um, and, you know, evidently nonstop throughout the years, always supporting, um, even when I barely could play anything. And I'm like, mom, I just learned a redemption song. Can I play it for you? And she's like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then it would sound horrible, but she would still cheer for me. So I really appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's great. And 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 uh, what guitar did your aunt give you? And 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 how did you fall in love with the bass guitar specifically? Ooh, she gave me um, a Yamaha classic guitar, a C40. I think that she owned for ten years, so she just handed it over to me. Uh -huh. Very very generous. Um, I think I've always loved the bass, but particularly this ex lover of mine, I think, was the fuel for for me to continue. Um, going through it because he was okay. It was a very toxic relationship. But we're not going to talk about that. 
But he he used to tell me, um, yeah, I saw him. He was so cool when he played bass and everyone thought he was so mysterious. I'm like, I want to be like that. <laughs> and then I think he told me, I asked him if he could teach me. And he said, no. He said, I'm not going to teach you. If you want to learn, go learn on your own. And I'm like, how would you do that? And then he's like, you'll thank me later. And I still do thank him very much because um, I fell in love with the instrument and I had no guidance, but that allowed me to come up with my own um, sound, my own, um, you know, style of playing that is if he had taught me how to play like him and now I don't think I want to play like him. I think I'm way cooler than, than him as a bass player. So yeah, I think that's <laughs> I'm where. I'm sure you are. <laughs> Tell us about yeah. your, a little bit about your work to empower the next generation of female Sudanese musicians. Mm, my favorite question. Um, when I was in Sudan, I used to do a lot of um, sessions for, for, for women and for musicians in general especially about music theory uh, and basics of, of music education. Um, but now I'm slowly, slowly working on building like a foundation that supports um, African women, um, especially musicians, whether through like instrument funding, you know, I'll just give you some instruments or through like knowledge sharing and peer-to-peer -peer learning. Um, I think that's, one of the hardest things to get access to um, when you're a young woman uh, is, first of all, proper equipment and also guidance on which instrument to even get. Like, I want to play bass, but do you know which bass you want to get? There's like hundreds and hundreds <laughs> of different types. So I would love to be able to do that um, at some point in my life to be able to support um, women at a large scale so that they can really, um, you know, explore and discover themselves as, as musicians and as powerful um, musicians in, in the continent. Um, and I'm also working um, with the, uh, the Global Music Association, which oh. is working on decolonizing African music cultures through education. Oh. It's also an incredible project that we will talk about at some other time. Uh, tell us, uh, that's, too, that's a bit too juicy to, to leave people <laughs> hanging without at least telling us a little more about that. Uh, yeah. So exactly how, how you're going about that? That is being done. So for, so, the, so there's like seven teachers who over the course of the last 20 years have come up with curriculum that provides African musicians with the tools and um, the knowledge to create their own music, their own curricula. Because one thing you will see all over the continent is we are not being taught authentic African music. We are being taught classical music, which is European. Um, and you see that we try to melange, you know, the classical music with our African music. But that is that's not who we are. The music language of classical music doesn't speak to who we are as, as Africans. Um, if you look at the history of jazz, they say that jazz stemmed from uh, classical music. But jazz is a genre of its own. Classical music doesn't have improvisation, you know. Um, so in this project, what we're trying to do is we're trying to establish or we support musicians um, around the continent to establish their own academies to develop their own curricula that highlights and reflects on their own cultures um, on their own without being influenced by um, European or you know, yeah, European music education cultures. And it is a really, really great program. I think um, I you know, I sat in one of the courses for two for two weeks and I was like, two weeks later, I'm like, who am I? I feel like a totally <laughs> different uh, musician in terms wow. of content. Um, 
and also in terms of resistance to and you know to colonization and making sure that we continue to decolonize because again if we look at culture if we truly want to be authentically african we need to be able to make sure that our culture also represents that and it's not you know colored by a few european uh, you know colors here and there and like i went to a film screening the other day and they were handing out masks that had the eu thingy on them i'm like come on guys like <laughs> It's so cliche, like, yeah, come on, we're in 2021, like, do something more creative, you know? Um, so, yeah, yeah but of every, course... Everybody they, wants to put the stamp or the logo on us. And now um, they put it on the masks everywhere yeah. you go, you know? So, I want to ask you the last question, okay? Mm-hmm. And if we could wave a wand and you had the power to write a clause in a new social contract that every government would implement. And by social contract, we're simply meaning, what are the commitments that our governments make to the people? What is the one thing that you'd say every government absolutely should have as a commitment to their people, if you were to choose one thing? They should definitely um, put arts and culture in the forefront of everything, uh, to be honest, to stop marginalizing um, artists and creatives and to really put artists in the pedestal where they deserve to be. Because, because of artists, um, a lot of people are able to, you know, um, be where they are. This revolution in Sudan wouldn't have happened without artists. So I think the one clause would be to make sure that arts and culture are being represented very, very well in the entire broad of the scheme. And uh, assuming every go- government in the world did that, which I would vote for that <laughs> uh what would you hope will be the output of that the effect of that how would that impact on society in a positive way i think we will have societies that are way more community-based than they are right now um mm-hmm. we will have societies that are extremely well educated um on many many different uh, different things i think we will have an incredible economic boost uh, in general, because especially in Africa. Um, so I think not just for social reasons, but for economic reasons, I think artists are just super people, you know. Um, and that I think, yeah, when, when, when they're being put where they need to be and where they deserve to be, I think we can see some incredible results from that. Thank you, Islam. Now, um, before we say goodbye to you, let me thank you so much for this conversation. And let me wish you Godspeed and big courage as you break these new fields, both with the work you're doing around the cultural wave for the Global Assembly, but also the Policy Foundation trying to generate policy in a more inclusive and participatory way. I think it's just inspirational for me uh, to hear a young person like you having that energy, that vision and so on. And I just want to wish you well in all that you do. And thank you once again, Islam, for making time to speak. Thank you so much, Islam. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to this episode of Power, People and Planet. The show is produced in association with the Green Economy Coalition, one of the world's biggest global alliances fighting for green and fair economies. We would love your help to spread the message of this podcast and the conversations within. So please do follow us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.